Well, you all know kind of how the plot line goes. Uh, Every romantic comedy kind of follows the same sort of uh, progression of events. Boy meets girl. Boy does something to win the affections of girl. Boy and girl determine that they actually do love each other. But wait, some major crisis comes up. And boy and girl's love for each other is immediately threatened and endangered through the course of several maybe unplanned and, and, and uh, inconspicuous sort of events or whatever, maybe even conspicuous events, boy and girl get through the crisis and they do decide that they do love each other and they live happily ever after. That's basically the plot of every uh, romantic comedy. And there's usually some grand gesture by the boy at some point to win the, the graces, to win the love of the girl. And that is a plot that is incredibly old. It's, it's as old, at least, as the book of Ruth itself. I mean, it's a, it's a thousands-year-old plot. The great thing about the book of Ruth is that plot happens to be true. It really did happen. And there's much spiritual and redemptive significance even to this story. And so tonight we look at the book of Ruth, this, uh, this romance uh, that we have in the Old Testament uh, in a very, very dark time in Israel's history that serves in such a way as to bring hope and light, uh, not just to a couple, Ruth and Boaz, but to the whole people of Israel and, and even eventually to the nations. So let's jump right in and deal with some of these particulars surrounding the book of Ruth tonight, and then, um, and then we'll dive into the text itself. You'll find as you read through the book of Ruth that you will not find anywhere um, a recorded author uh, there, there's no byline in Ruth. Now, some scholars think that the book of Ruth was likely written or possibly written by the prophet Samuel uh, since, the, uh, um, uh, since uh, the events of Ruth happened toward the end of the judges period and prior to um, the ascendancy of the monarchy in Israel. Uh, but there's no, there's no proof to that one way or the other. Uh, others think that maybe even King David himself could have been the author of this story. We'll find later on that Ruth... Uh, and Boaz are King David's great great grandparents, and uh, Ruth's the book of Ruth ends with uh, a genealogy of leading up to David, uh, who is the king of Israel. Something that possibly this is David going back and writing the love story of his great great grandparents and how that came to be. Um, either way, we shouldn't form, I don't think, any solid determination or firm doctrine necessarily about who the author of the book of Ruth is. And truth be told, there are several books of the Bible uh, for which we don't know specifically who the author is. Uh, Ruth is just one example. Uh, many of the Psalms don't have authors, or we're not able to say with, uh, with much uh, definition as to who the author of many of the Psalms is. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament is authorless. Many think that Paul wrote it, but many others, and good for and for good reason, think that there's no way Paul could have written Hebrews. And so uh, just because we don't know who a specific author is of a particular book shouldn't sway us one way or the other as to the authority that it holds as part of God's word. Now, speaking of the dating of Ruth, the events of Ruth, as we know from Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, uh, the events of Ruth happened during the period of the judges in Israel. We saw, we looked at the book of Judges back in January, saw the dumpster fire that was Israel during that time. And we read in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
And so that kind of sets the, the tone for us. And so when you read Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, remember all of the terrible things that were happening during the period of the judges. Um, and the book of Ruth sets, sits as a stark contrast to what else is going on in Israel at that time. The events of Ruth happening maybe as early as 900 B.C., hard to say. Um, but these are David's great-great-grandparents. And so you can do a little bit of math backward from when David takes the throne to when this could have happened. Uh, the date of its final composition, so Ruth in its final form, would have been finished likely after the time when David uh, was on the throne as king in Israel around the year uh, 1010, 1010 B.C. So maybe up to 100 years between when Ruth happened and when the, book, when the events of Ruth happened and when the book itself was actually written. Uh, many of you are probably very familiar with the book of Ruth. It's a, it's a popular book of the Bible and for good reason. Ruth is a story of how David's great-grandmother and great-grandfather came to be married. It's a story of a widowed foreigner and and former pagan who gives up her old gods for the love of her widowed mother-in-law to become a follower of the one true God and a resident of Israel. A combination of seemingly coincidental events and strategic planning in the life of Ruth lead, lead to her marriage to a kind and compassionate man of Israel named Boaz. And we find in the course of Ruth that all of these seemingly coincidental events and strategic planning actually appear to be driven by the sovereign hand of God. This is a story of kindness, a story of redemption that ultimately point to the Lord's loving intention to rescue people from their sin by a greater kinsman redeemer. And those those terms, uh, that term kinsman redeemer will become uh, more clear as we work through the book of Ruth tonight. Three major themes that that I want to point our attention to uh, or point your attention to in the course of Ruth. The first is the kindness of the Lord. The kindness of the Lord. Second is the kindness of those who love the Lord. The Lord's kindness working through those who love him. And then finally, the redemption of the Lord facilitated through human kindness. The way that God rescues people out of desperate situations through the kindness of people who love him. As we think about Ruth and the scope of redemption history, as we do with every book of the Bible as we work through this series, we find that uh, Ruth, it it, it takes place in the the context of the time of the judges, the period of the judges, this horrible period in the history of Israel where the sin of Israel is just on full display there as a people. But uh, the book of Ruth also points us to the concept of a redeemer in explicit terms, but also um, even beyond a, a human redeemers who can redeem us from certain situations, it, it points to our need for a greater redeemer. And so if I were to place Ruth in the scope of redemption history, I would kind of put maybe not a solid line, but a dotted line kind of around those two central parts of the redemption history narrative, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, around those two centerpieces of fall and redemption. Because it's taking place in the context of fallen Israel, but it's pointing to the, the, the future hope of a redeemer and of redemption. Now, like every book of the Old Testament that we've read to this point, Ruth, the genre of Ruth is historical narrative. Like other books of historical narrative, there's not a lot for us in the way of instructive material, like do this, don't do that. But there is a lot in regard to God's character, how God reveals his character through uh, events, through people, through the author of the book as he reflects upon what God was doing in that time. And so I find it extremely helpful when you are uh, on your own studying Ruth to ask yourself questions like this, to understand the text and to begin to apply it to your life. Well, what is this text telling me about God and his character? That's a question we ask about every book of historical narrative, whether it's in the Old or in the New Testament. 
Secondly, what does this text reveal to me about, how the, uh, about the shaping power of God's character? How does God's character shape the hearts of his people? And how does God's character shape the events in the lives of his people? And finally, what does this text reveal about how God deals with people, how God interacts with persons? Now, I've labeled this uh, sermon, this study in Ruth, uh, or, or, or subtitled it, Kindness and Redemption. Ruth is a book about kindness and redemption. And those are the two things we're going to kind of uh, look at and pull out of the text as we work through it together tonight. Ruth in outline is essentially four scenes. Scene one takes place in chapter one. And there we have Naomi, uh, Ruth's mother-in-law, and Ruth returning to Bethlehem from the country of Moab. In chapter two, we see Ruth gleaning in Boaz's field where she meets the boy, right? And then in chapter three, we have the third scene where there's a marriage proposal and it's a somewhat unlikely or or maybe unexpected marriage proposal. And then in chapter four, we find redemption, a wedding and a baby. Everybody loves a story that ends with a wedding and a baby. So we're going to work through Ruth scene by scene tonight. And because Ruth is a shorter book, Uh, I'm going to allow the narrative of Ruth to shape uh, just a lot of our time tonight. So we're going to read most of the book of Ruth together as a family tonight. Let's look first at scene one in Ruth chapter one. Here we see the kindness of the Lord on full display. Now, this book of Ruth opens with an introduction to the characters and the situation that they face. Immediately, we're introduced to a man named Elimelech with his wife, Naomi, and their two sons named Mahlon and Kilion, which uh, I'm citing my Hebrew professor from seminary. Those two names, Mahlon and Kilion, mean sickly and puny. So don't put those on your baby naming list. The two, uh, uh, excuse me, Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons, sickly and puny, decide to leave Bethlehem in the land of Judah because of a severe famine in the land. Now, whether this famine is because God is judging the sinfulness of Israel during the time of the judges, or this famine is just another uh, event that the sovereign God is using to work out his sovereign plan, the text doesn't say, just says that there's a famine in the land. And so this family leaves to the country of Moab where there is food. Now, there's some intentional irony here for us to catch on that's not quite so obvious to us in English. Now, does anybody know what the, the word, the city name Bethlehem means? House of bread. Bethlehem means house of bread. And Elimelech and Naomi and their family have to leave because of a famine. There is no food in the house of bread, right? So just catch that irony that's there in the story. The family uh, moves, as we said, to a neighboring nation called Moab, a non-Jewish nation where their Elimelech's sons marry Moabite wives, uh, uh, Ruth and Orpah, not Oprah, but Orpah. In the course of time, all of the men, as they're in Moab, they all die. Elimelech dies, Mahlon dies, Puny dies, or, or excuse me, Kilion dies. So the father of the family and the two boys, Sickly and Puny, all die in this, in this foreign land, leaving Naomi and her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, widowed and alone. And that's where we pick up in chapter 6 of Ruth chapter 1, where we read this. Then she, and that is Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. 
But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and they wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your, your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I, sh- if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. And so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The name uh, Mara or Mara means bitter. I went away full, she said, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. In this first chapter of Ruth, we're introduced almost immediately to the kindness of the Lord in a somewhat inconspicuous way, a not-so-obvious way. As Naomi prepares to return to her homeland in Judah and to her hometown of Bethlehem, she allows her daughters-in-law to leave her and to return to their homes in Moab, to return to their families in Moab as well. Now, surely they no longer have anything holding them together. All of their husbands are dead, and Naomi has no other sons to give them as husbands. So, as we see, she releases them in verses 8 and 9, saying, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. It's in Naomi's release that we find the kindness of the Lord tucked neatly away in her blessing of her daughters. Notice there that she centers her blessing toward them around the kindness of the Lord that has also been shown to her by them. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. Now the word for kindness here is the Hebrew word chesed. Now you have to really like clear some stuff out of your throat to say that correctly. Chesed. And it appears twice more in the book of Ruth in chapter 3, verse 10. We'll find that in just a moment. It's a word that can be translated kindness or loyalty, even grace. But most appropriately in Ruth and in the dozens of other times it appears in the scriptures in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, most of all, it should be translated most appropriately faithful love. May the Lord deal in faithful love to you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Naomi is praying that God would deal in faithful love to her young daughters-in-law, these two young widows, as they have already dealt in faithful, loyal love to their mother-in-law, not, of out of, out of, not out of obligation, but out of sincere care for her. Now, Orpah, with much sadness, leaves Naomi. She returns to her family. 
goes back to Moab. But we find in this chapter Ruth remaining. She clings to Naomi, the text says, and she does so with a statement that does nothing less than personify this kindness of the Lord through Ruth to Naomi, this chesed, if you will. We read there in verses 16 and 17, Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more more also if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth here is renouncing in this statement. She's renouncing her home and her family. She's renouncing her family gods for the one true God. She's renouncing uh, everything that she knew in Moab and and committing the course of her days in faithfulness to her mother-in-law. This is faithful love in its clearest terms, friends. Now, likely you have heard this passage most often read in wedding ceremonies where a husband and a wife may read these verses uh, to one another. Where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And it's read in marriage ceremonies, not, not wrongly. I mean, it's, it's not wrong to express that kind of covenant love to one another in a marriage ceremony. But... All the more, I want us to notice that the kind of covenant love and kindness that is expressed here in Ruth is not between a man and a woman committing their lives together out of love for one another and for God, but from one widow to another, between a mother, mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law, between whom nothing is owed. So you talk about steadfast love. You talk about faithful love, loving kindness, care and compassion for others, uh, the kind of love that the Lord has for us. And, and, and we see all of that just wonderfully illustrated between Ruth and Naomi here. And I want us to understand that as we see Ruth d- demonstrating her faithful love to her mother-in-law, that this is exactly how the Lord deals with his people in kindness, in chesed as well. Friends, the Lord owes his creatures nothing. He has no obligation to fulfill to us. He has no debt to repay us. Rather, it is quite the opposite. We have everything to owe the Lord, and yet he is faithful when we are idolatrous. His kindness leads him to be patient with our failings. His enduring love wins the hearts of those who wander from him. If you want to see God's faithful love on display, turn to the New Testament, to the Gospels, to see Jesus, God in the flesh, the one who demonstrates perfectly the love, the loving kindness of God to man. Scene two. We see a kind man. First scene one, the kindness of the Lord. Scene two, the kindness of a man. Chapter one of Ruth ends with Naomi and Ruth returning to Bethlehem and Naomi Naomi changing her name to Mara, which as we saw means bitter because she feels that the Lord has dealt bitterly with her. Now, funny enough, she is never referred to again as Mara in the rest of the course of this book of Ruth. I think uh, partly because, and spoiler alert here, her life is actually not characterized by the bitterness of the Lord to her, but it is saturated with the sweetness of his faithful love. And so the author of Ruth, I think, is saying, you know, Naomi said this and did this, but I'm not going to call her this because to call her that would be a lie. It just wouldn't be true about who she is. Her life is saturated with the sweetness of God's faithful love, a love that continues through another human character here in chapter 2, where we read this. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man in the clan of Elimelech. You'll remember Elimelech was Naomi's husband. His name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. 
And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she went, so, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was in the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge." Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And so she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied. She had some left over. When she rose again, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. And so she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. An ephah of barley is about two and a half weeks worth of food. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she took her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, Uh, excuse me. So she took her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, this man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, uh, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now here in this scene, Ruth goes uh, out in in Bethlehem or the fields surrounding Bethlehem to provide for herself and for her mother-in-law the only viable way that she can. And by gathering the bits of barley that either fall from the sheaves of grain or from along the edges of the field, um, she's able to provide for the two of them. You'll likely remember that this was a provision of God from Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, a provision for the poor, for the sojourner, for the foreigner in Israel, that they're allowed to pick up what the reapers leave behind. As it happens, the field that she chooses is one that belongs to a man named Boaz, this man from the clan of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. Boaz seems to be, as he sees Ruth in the field, immediately taken with her. This is like, I don't know if I'd call it love at first sight, but, but he's defin- he definitely likes her, like he like likes her, like he's going to write a note and give it to his buddy to pass to Ruth, to, will you go out with me, circle yes or no, kind of thing. 
Boaz is taken with Ruth, and he asks his workers who she is and where she comes from and extends to her an invitation then, after that, the, the day of harvesting, to stay for dinner with them and to continue gathering in the field for as long as she needs. And in fact, he, he tells her even more. He goes even further. He says, not only can you stay and, and glean uh, among the fields for as long as you need, but don't even go to another field. Stay here. We find in verses 11 and 12 that is precisely the kindness that Ruth has shown to Naomi that finds favor in Boaz's sight. Verses 11 and 12, we read this. Boaz says to Ruth, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and your mother in native land came to a people that you didn't know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That day, that night, when Ruth returns home, she tells her mother-in-law about all that happened and shows her all that she was able to glean that day. And Naomi is thrilled, certainly about the food, but also about the new arrangement that will provide for them throughout the summer months. And now, uh, uh, Naomi, in her own speech, in her own discussion with Ruth, herself blesses Boaz for the kindness of the Lord that is shown through him. And it is in her blessing that we find that this kind man, Boaz, is also something else. We read in chapter 2, verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness, there's that word, hesed again, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. Now, the concept of redeemer, the Hebrew word for redeemer is goel. So we have two fun Hebrew words in this book that, that are very important. Chesed, loving kindness, steadfast love that God has for his people that Ruth shows to her mother-in-law, and redeemer, the Hebrew word goel. The concept of a redeemer that Naomi uh, relates to here is from Leviticus chapter 25, verses 23 through 25. See, already twice we have referenced the book of Leviticus here in the book of Ruth, and y'all thought Leviticus was boring and didn't matter. Leviticus chapter 20, 25, verses 23 through 25, and Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6, in those two places, God instructs the people of Israel to practice family redemption. And what's meant by that is that Israel, the people of Israel, are to, in one, uh, on the one hand, buy back land of a family member that was sold to pay a debt, thereby redeeming or rescuing the land back to the family that it belongs to, uh, rescuing it from being perpetually lost and belonging to someone else. Likewise, God gives instruction in Deuteronomy for a brother to marry the wife of his dead brother and to have children by her to perpetuate uh, his brother's name and to honor the memory of his brother. Now, this practice of one brother marrying his dead brother's wife and having children by her is known as leveret marriage. Now, I'm not going to quiz you on that, so you don't have to remember it. But leveret marriage... Um, uh, the practice that's known as leveret marriage is now a real means of both Ruth and Naomi being taken care of in their widowed state and in their bereavement. There is a, a, a possibility for a husband for Ruth and a possibility for their, their land not to be lost forever. And so here we see an extremely generous and kind man in Boaz who is seen by Naomi, and rightly so, as a carrier of the very steadfast love and kindness of God himself. She says he has dealt in kindness, the kind of kindness that the Lord deals, uh, and even the Lord's kindness is to us through Boaz. And with the prospect of possible marriage, being as Boaz is related to Elimelech, Naomi's husband, and he's a potential kinsman redeemer, a potential goel, Right Now, the, the wheels really get to spinning in Naomi's head. Now, before we go on to Ruth chapter 3, I would encourage us not to read Ruth chapter 2 
and miss all of the hope that is bound up here in the prospect of a redeemer. Don't miss the hope, the excitement, the anticipation uh, that, that closes Ruth chapter 2. Now, each of us, knowing that we stand guilty before God for our sins, should in our heart of hearts long for a way out, long for a way to be made right with God, long for a way to be rescued from our sins. Our souls should groan for rescue, even as Naomi and Ruth groan for rescue. And praise God, he has given us a kinsman redeemer. He's given us a Goel in Jesus, his son, truly God and yet truly man, one of us, God with us, sent to redeem us from our sins. The book of Ruth is already pointing us uh, to this concept of a greater redeemer, one that, just, that, that doesn't merely rescue people from uh, being in a widowed state and from being poor, uh, but who rescues people from sins. Now with Naomi and her wheels spinning in her head, she sees the goodness of the Lord at work in Boaz and recognizes he's a kinsman redeemer. We get to scene three, chapter three, and the marriage proposal. No sooner does Naomi recognize the potential for a redemptive marriage and a provision for her daughter Ruth, then does she immediately go into matchmaker road, matchmaker mode. So Ruth chapter three, verses one through five, we read this. Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the fleshing floor, uh, threshing floor, not fleshing floor, goodness, threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man unless he has finished eat, uh, until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And Ruth replied, all that you say, I will do. Now, we should not read in Naomi's uh, planning uh, we should not read this as a scheming or a, a, a plotting point in the story, although there is a little bit there. It is certainly strategic on the part of Naomi to do what she's doing, to set uh, Ruth and Boaz up the way she intends. But instead of reading it as scheming or plotting, I think it's right to read this as the shrewd and wise planning of Naomi to use the perpetual ben- uh, to, um, excuse me, to see to the perpetual benefit and care of Ruth. Naomi, knowing the laws that God has given to Israel for how widowed women may be cared for, is now seeking to leverage the provision of God's law in the ben- for the benefit of Ruth and also for herself. It's not scheming. It's not plotting. It's, it's just wise. It's just shrewd. Now, Ruth, trusting her mother-in-law, and apparently, I think, also seeing the wisdom in this plan, and, and maybe also seeing a little something in Boaz that she herself like-likes, does all that her mother-in-law commands. And so we read in verses 6 through 18. Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, and the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a young woman at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, for you have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. There's a relative closer in relation to Elimelech than Boaz. Remain tonight, he says, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. 
lie down until the morning. And so she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me for he said to me, you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now, this marriage proposal by Ruth, kind of in the middle of the night, on the threshing floor of the, uh, of the, the barley room where they separate the, the kernel of the, of the wheat and the barley from the chaff and get the good stuff away from the bad stuff. This marriage proposal by Ruth in the middle of the night is certainly out of the norm, to say the least. This isn't normally how women in Israel told men that they like-liked them and wanted to marry them. Some would see, some scholars would see and would even imply that in her approach to Boaz in the middle of the night and in uncovering his feet in the way that she did, that they would see more than a hint of sexual impropriety in this verse, in this passage. And maybe you have come across some of those scholars that imply that sort of thing. But I would have you know that there's really nothing in the text to indicate that anything untoward or anything improper, improper excuse me, actually took place that night. Rather, instead, what we do find is Boaz being quite taken with the kindness of Ruth yet again. We read in chapter 3, verse 10, Boaz saying to Ruth, he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, for you have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. Now, the first kindness was Ruth's commitment to her mother-in-law. The last kindness that Boaz is speaking about is that Ruth has sought shelter and care and love in an older man, likely outside of his prime marrying years. This isn't like, it's not like Ruth is, you know, 18 and Boaz is 22 and they're just ripe to get together or whatever. Uh, Boaz is considerably older. Now, Ruth is, is here, we should, we should notice and understand, Ruth is no gold digger, okay? And the text does not incline us to see her that way. She's not going after an older man with money just so she can be taken care of. Instead, we are meant to see that she finds in Boaz the kind of godly kindness that is truly wooing. Boaz himself being wooed by Ruth's kindness agrees, but, but he adds a catch in this proposal. Right? He says, I'll, I'll marry you, I'll redeem you, but... There's another kinsman, there's another Goel who is of closer relation to Elimelech than me. Another man who has the first right of refusal when it comes to leveret marriage. As we come to the close of Ruth chapter 3, I think we should, come, we, we should come to the realization and see this, that God redeems in unlikely ways. God redeems in unlikely ways. There's nothing common. There's nothing really very normal or, or even very um, um, expected uh, or, or foreseeable in the marriage proposal between Ruth and Boaz. It's entirely unlikely. Boaz ought not to have been Ruth's first choice, but he is the perfect redeemer for her who will rescue her for the love of her and not because he gains anything from it. Likewise, God rescues us from our sins, friends, through his son, Jesus, not because he gains anything from it, but simply for the love of sinners and to show in, a, in, an, in an extravagant way his steadfast love to us. There is much of the character of God's redemption on display in, in, how, in, in this union between, or potential union, at least at the end of Ruth chapter 3, between Ruth and Boaz. Ruth seeking an unlikely redeemer. We also do the same. 
We like to, in our own minds, conjure up redeemers or conjure up an image of God who saves us because he sees something worthy in us. There's nothing worthy in us to be saved by God. And likewise, we, we sometimes think of, well, uh, of God as an unlikely redeemer, and, and rightly so. Like, why would God give his own son to die for wretched sinners? Like, the, the whole thing is just unlikely. The whole thing's unexpected. The whole thing's just, you, you can't write this stuff, and yet it just, it, it's there, and it makes sense. Even as Boaz serves as Ruth's unlikely, unlikely redeemer in a much more meaningful, tangible, eternal, and spiritual way. God is our unlikely redeemer. In Ruth chapter four, we get to the final scene, scene four, where we see redemption, a wedding, and a baby. Now, the next day after the events of Ruth chapter three, Boaz rises and goes to the gate of the city to arrange Ruth's redemption. Now, the city gates is where all official business took place. So it's like going to city council to, or, or, or town hall to take care of uh, business here. But first, he has to, as we'll find, have a discussion with that closer redeemer. And so we read in Ruth chapter one, verse, or Ruth chapter four, excuse me, verses one through 17. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and he sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. And then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell, tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And the man said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, oh, by the way, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. So take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redemption and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Aren't you guys glad, by the way, that we just signed contracts today? And you don't go home half barefoot? So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Mahlon. Also, Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, uh, wives of uh, Jacob, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you uh, this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi uh, took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. What a great scene. What a great scene. 
The whole story of, of Ruth has all of the romance and all of the drama with none of the impropriety and impurity that the best romantic comedies of our time can conjure up. Boaz, like Naomi, deals shrewdly with, his, uh, with this other redeemer, drawing him in to redeem the land of Elimelech, but then including the lesser known fact that Ruth comes along with it in what is not exactly a bait and switch move, but certainly is as cunning as that. Again, Boaz is totally proper. He's totally righteous in his dealing. He's not being dishonest. He's not lying about anything, just being shrewd, being uncannily wise and ensuring that he will be the husband of Ruth. Indeed, they are married as all good uh, romances go, and God blesses them with a son. The blessing of the son is of uh, particular importance here, and we ought not miss it. You'll remember that the story begins with all of the men dying. Elimelech dies, Mahlon dies, Kilion dies. And you have these three women with no hope of ever bearing children, of their, of their name ever being carried on, of no hope for the future. And the end of Ruth, Ruth ends with the hope of a child being born, a son being born. We find also in Ruth and Boaz being blessed with a son, so also is Naomi. Obed is not just a blessing to Boaz and to Ruth, but to his grandmother, Naomi, as well, who herself was widowed and childless, is now by Obed also blessed by the Lord. And so the women of the town can say, rightly so, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who's more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Friends, I hope you see again in all of this the ongoing faithful love. Once again, that word, the chesed of the Lord to his people. At no point in the course of these ladies' lives, Ruth and Naomi, has God ever left them unattended. His love and his kindness has not only provided for them, but has provided a rescue from poverty, from grief, from bereavement. His is a redemption that does more than compensate for losses. It does more than help these ladies break even. It overcompensates for losses and it blesses beyond imagination. In the time of the judges when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, the Lord in his kindness gives a light in the darkness, redemption for the desperate, and he puts into place a plan to bring a godly king to Israel. Ruth is a wonderful romantic story, dramatic story, but it's also a story of great hope, hope in God and in his sovereign hand and his sovereign plan to do what he will to work out his plan of redemption. His plan of redemption, which is ultimately fulfilled in and through his son, Jesus. And so now we can see, we can discover even glimpses of Christ uh, in the book of Ruth in at least two different ways, and I'm sure you could find many others. First of all, we find that Jesus is the content of God's greatest act of kindness and redemption. We said that Ruth is a book all about the kindness of the Lord and of his redemption. Jesus is the content. He's the subject of God's greatest act of kindness and redemption. Nothing is kinder, nothing shows more faithful love than what God does for sinners in Jesus Christ. And so Paul can say in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us, an unlikely redeemer. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You want to see the love of God, the kindness of God, the redemption of God on display? Don't look just at Ruth. Look at the rest of the scriptures to see how God's perfect plan of redemption is fulfilled in Jesus. How he shows his faithful love to multitudes, both Jew and Gentile, man and woman, people the world round, that they might be redeemed, saved from their sins, bought back from the grip of sin and death and Satan, purchased for himself. Jesus is the content of God's greatest act of kindness and redemption. But also, and I know that you already know where this is going, Jesus is the son of David, the king of kings, that comes from David, born in Bethlehem. Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. The author of Ruth concludes his book this way. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And now quickly, if you can, in your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1. Where Ruth ends with a genealogy, Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy. And there we see a good many uh, parallels. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, which we know makes him heir to the throne in Israel, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez by, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David the king. And if you skip down to verse 17 of Matthew chapter 1, we read this. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Ruth is important, not just because it demonstrates to us the character of God, but it is important to us because it shows the faithfulness of God to his covenant promises to provide a redeemer through unlikely events and an unlikely marriage that lead to the birth of a man named Obed, who will be the father of a man named Jesse, who will be father of a man named David, who will be the first good king in Israel, the throne of, of which God uh, uh, promises never to pass away from the face of the earth. That promise God makes full. He fulfills it in Jesus Christ. God made flesh who was born in the line of David and heir to the throne and fulfiller of God's covenant redemption and covenant mercy. As we see God's loving kindness and his redemption in Ruth, we look forward to the New Testament. We see the kindness of God and his redemption to us in Christ. And as a family of faith, 
uh, we come together to remember what Christ has done to purchase our redemption. Boaz just, he, he paid a price. He bought some land and Ruth became his wife. God pays a price also for our redemption, but it's not so simple as buying a piece of land or paying a debt to somebody to whom we owe money. God himself absorbs the debt that we owed him. He doesn't just pass over it. He doesn't just overlook it. He doesn't wink at sin or wink at our death, but he sends his son Jesus to die for us to pay that debt. As a church, we gather together around these elements, the bread and the cup, known as the Lord's Supper, to remember Christ's death for us and for our sins. As we prepare our hearts to take this supper together, I'd like to just have a, a quiet moment of uh, reflection uh, as a church body, knowing that, that as we share in this meal together, we are proclaiming the truth of the gospel and also proclaiming that we believe the gospel, that we trust it, that we've given our life to Christ. As we take this bread, we remember Christ's body. As we drink the cup, we remember his blood shed for us. And in all of that, we know that he gave it for our sins. And Paul instructs us in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, to do this mindfully, to, to uh, consider and to evaluate our own sins before the Lord, before we take this meal. And so knowing the price of our redemption, which is Christ on the cross, I'd like you to just take a couple of moments in reflection upon that price as we prepare our hearts to receive the supper together.